0: Amen, amen. While you stand, let's turn to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and that's page 518 in the Pew Bible, if you would like to use one of the Bibles that's provided for you in your pews. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 24. When you're there, say Amen. ecclesiastes psalms proverbs ecclesiastes there it is chapter 2 verse 12 through 24 or 26 rather follow along as i read it says so i turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? But to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to those, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This morning I want to preach on this text, and I'm going to title my sermon, Enjoying the Life We Hate enjoying the life we hate. Would you pray with me one more time as we ask God for His help? Father, we thank You for this text. God, help us understand it today. Help me to communicate with clarity and with passion the meaning and the purpose and the point of this text and apply it to our hearts. I pray, God, that I would speak Your truths, not merely my ideas, that You would open us to shape us according to Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A piece of soap sits on my bookshelf. I'm typically not one to value a piece of soap. I'm typically not one to especially display a bar of soap on my bookshelf. Yet this particular bar of soap was a gift to me from my mother a few weeks ago. And it's a bar of soap that's shaped like a book, blue, and it has my name, Joel, written on the binding. And just knowing that my mother, while she was traveling in Florida, came across a bar of soap with my name on it, and thought of me, and bought it for me, and brought it to Baltimore, and gave it to me as a gift, increases the value of the bar of soap to the point where I actually stuck a bar of soap on my bookshelf. Are you with me? Meaning, the value of a gift is not in the thing itself, but the value of the gift is in all that that thing represents and means about the giver. And so I wonder if you... Are someone who can embrace and accept and enjoy all of life, every moment and every opportunity, as a gift from God. From the Cheerios you ate this morning to the cold cut sandwich you'll have for lunch. If we don't understand that these things are gifts from God, then they, were, they, are, they are just things. You know, like a bar of soap that will just be used, a bar of soap that will be discarded. But if we understand that this thing is a gift and that this thing represents so much more than the thing itself, it increases our enjoyment of the thing. Are you with me? So do you enjoy all of life as a gift from God? Or does your hatred of this life lead you to being cynical, and angry, and foolish. You might say, I can't enjoy life. I can't enjoy any of it because life is too hard. It is too disappointing. It is too problematic. It it involves one problem after another, one problem person after another, and so I'm cynical, I'm angry, or maybe I'm just a fool. That feeling... I hate life. Is probably a feeling that we all have had in common with each other at one point. You're not alone. As a matter of fact, that may be a feeling that is, uh, has been felt that ties us together with almost every human ever. You know, whether it is the stress of trying to get your kids dressed and get to work on time. Whether it's the pressures at work, whether it's the problems with your schooling, whether it's the the fact that you're not making enough to pay the bills, we all have had this point in life where we say, I hate this life. And whether we verbalize it or not, we feel it, don't we? And there are some good reasons to hate life. Meaning, the fact that we can never really accomplish what we want to accomplish to find some kind of meaning in this life, to find some kind of fulfillment in this life, to be able to say, I've arrived. We're never there. We hate that, don't we? The fact that success, no matter how much success you attain, it's never enough to fulfill you. So the question I want to ask this morning is this. Can we enjoy the life that we hate? It's kind of a weird question, isn't it? Just track with me. We're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the author so far in these first two chapters of Ecclesiastes with compelling force has shown us that all of life, from success to knowledge to pleasure, is futile. If we, if, if we are seeking... Uh, uh, some kind of meaning, some kind of fulfillment in life itself, apart from God, we will never arrive. That's been his point. And then he gets into this, these 14 verses, which are kind of like a hinge verse, uh, a hinge passage for us, as he turns the corner slightly and starts pointing our attention directly toward God. And it's really a, a strange passage in that we see a contrast in the passage itself in verse 17 the author says i hated life but then we keep on going and we get to verse 24 where he says there's nothing better to enjoy life to eat drink and find enjoyment in your work and he says this is from the hand of god meaning this is a gift from god so does he hate life or does he enjoy life now I think the passage is absolutely brilliant. And I hope that in the next few minutes I can communicate some of the genius of this passage and apply it to your own life so that you might actually enjoy life. In 14 verses, what we see is that the proper hatred of life, hating certain aspects of life, can actually lead us to properly, rightly enjoy life. Meaning, God does not want to leave you a grumbler. God does not want to leave you complaining about your life. But God wants you to see the limitations that your life provides for you, to hate, rightly hate those limitations, so that you might actually have joy and fulfillment in Him and enjoyment in this life. So how can I learn to enjoy the life that I hate? Before we get to the enjoyment piece, let me give you two good reasons to hate life. All right? Not your typical Sunday sermon. Two good reasons to hate life. But we see it in the passage here, verse 12 through 17, number one, we hate life for its brevity. Hate life for its brevity, meaning the fact that lo- death is looming over all of us. It's short, it's brief, we're here like a cloud that it seems so thick and, and, and tangible, yet it's gone tomorrow and you don't even remember it. Hate life for its brevity. Verse 12, he says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What he's doing is, he's going past this whole experiment that he's been doing on success, and, and on knowledge, and on pleasure, and trying to find meaning in these things. And he's saying, I couldn't find meaning in any of it. It, it was all short. It was all uh, uh, vanity. It was all like a vapor, which is here, and then it's gone, and nothing's remembered. And, and so then he says, so I turned, I turned my attention to consider wisdom and folly. Meaning, he goes on to say, should I live a life of wisdom? With the, the fact that all of life is quickly fading, should I live a life of folly? Should I just give myself over to foolishness and to sin, to drunkenness and to lust? And he goes on to quickly say, no, actually wisdom is better. And he, it's, it's so much better, as a matter of fact, that he compares it to dark and to light. Have you ever been walking through a dark house? The lights are off. BG shut off the electricity. The electricity went out because of a storm. I don't know. You know the joy that comes into your heart when the lights come back on and you can see things? He says that's the difference between walking through this life with wisdom versus folly. And so he says wisdom is definitely better even though life is short and even though things won't last and even though you're not going to find meaning and fulfillment in your success and in your pleasures. He says it's still better to live a life of wisdom. But... This leads the author to a problem. The problem he explains in verse 15 through 17. He says the problem is this. Even if I walk through life with wisdom, I have the same end as the fool. We're both heading toward death and maybe they die at a different stage. Maybe they die die younger because of their foolishness. That's possible. Maybe I live a long life because of my wisdom. But you see what the problem is. We all still die. Look at verse 15. He says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why have I been so wise? And I said in my heart, This is vanity. For of the wise, as of the good, there is no remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. The wise dies just like the fool. He's saying that like, you know, it's insanity to believe that we're going to somehow be remembered. Remembered. It's insanity to believe that we're somehow going to leave a lasting legacy. Because even the greats, he's saying, are forgotten, along with the fools. And so you're striving so hard for greatness, for what purpose? So verse 17, he he concludes, he says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all of it was vanity and striving after the wind. He's saying, I'm not okay with this. He's saying, I don't like this. He's saying, if I'm placing my hope in what I can achieve in this world, and at the end of the day, I just die, that sucks. That's his point. Amen? So hate life for its brevity. Second reason, good reason to hate life in the text here is hate life for its futility. Verses 18 through 23. In verse 18, he hates his, or he repeats his hatred of uh, uh, uh of this this life. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And to, and, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun this also is vanity what he's saying is, is is that he's going to acquire and accumulate and you're going to accumulate and acquire and then at some point you're going to die and leave everything that you've acquired to someone else who didn't work for it and what makes it worse for him is that we don't know if that person that's going to take our stuff and benefit from our wisdom and our work is a wise person or a fool I mean, just think of this church building. We worked to renovate it, and here we are, a congregation that's sitting in it, but one day, another congregation will sit here that comes after us. None of us will be part of that. And they will benefit from the work that we did. And what he's saying is, what makes this hard is that we don't know if they're going to be wise or foolish. I know of a lot of great ministries that were great about 100 years ago, and now in the same building, using the same resources, the same seeds that those, that ministry planted uh, is, is now a church that's not even preaching the gospel, that has completely lost the gospel. Uh, uh, resources used by a fool. And he's saying this, this makes life kind of miserable. The fact that we don't know whether or not the person who's coming after, after us will steward what we've done. Or think of the wise man who leaves an inheritance to his child and his child is a fool and uses that inheritance only for uh, drug addiction and alcohol and parties and, and, and selfish consumption. He's saying this, this reality is, is, is miserable to me. Again, a very biblical concept. It sucks. Are you with me? That's what he's saying. I, ha- I hate this about life. So verse 20, he says, So I turned and and I gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Now, is the author sinful in his hatred of life? I don't think so. I think he's actually hating life in a very godly kind of way. Now, before that gives you an excuse to be a cynical, angry person who feels justified in the hatred of your life, let me pause you. Hatred in the Bible is not just simply a feeling, but hatred is really the opposite of love. It's the opposite of clinging to something. It's the opposite of looking at something. It's the opposite of hanging on to something. Now, the Bible almost always speaks of hatred negatively, meaning you are not allowed to hate your neighbor because Jesus said you must love your neighbor as yourself. You're not allowed to hate each other because Jesus said in First John, John writes, Any- anybody who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is actually living in the dark. You are not allowed to hate this world in general because God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for the earth dwellers and all who turn to him are forgiven of their sins. So what should Christians hate? Have you ever thought about that? What should Christians hate? Well, Psalm 97 verse 10 tells us, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Christians should hate sin. Christians should hate the effects of the fall. Christians should hate futility. Christians should hate the reality that death is coming because death Is the curse. As a matter of fact, Christians should hate death. This is why, by the way, Christian cliches never work. When God opens the door, he opens, uh, when God closes the door, he opens a window, someone might say. You're never more safe than when you're in God's will. Let go and let God. God will give you, God will not give you more than you can handle. God helps those who help themselves. Christian cliches don't work because Christian cliches don't recognize and understand and hate the darkness and the ugliness of life. For example, if your friend loses a job due to discrimination and you say to that friend, when God closes a door, he opens a window, they'll say, "Are, are you serious? Like, I just got fired over discrimination." And you're just going to give me some cliche as if it's okay? As if it's not, hate, uh, not uh, okay to hate what is evil? To look at darkness, to look at wickedness, and to say, that sucks? You know, or, or if uh, an, another friend is, is depressed, if you are depressed, to the point of even having suicidal thoughts. And someone comes along and says, oh, God will never put more on you than you can handle. That's just not true. That's not biblically true from the Bible. Sometimes there is more on us than we can handle. There is aspects of this life that are truly ugly and dark and hard. And as Christians, and as the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, he's not one to just look away from it and cling to Christian cliches, but he's saying no, we actually need to look at this, look at the limitations of life, look at the hardships of life. Are you with me? Here's the thing, though. The, there's another response that's the opposite, which is just as bad, and that's the hatred of the cynic. The angry person who says, I hate this life. The fool who says, I hate this life. That's not the kind of hatred that this author has. You know, the cynic is the one who's always the complainer, they're the miserable. Nothing is ever good enough for them. They, they receive a good meal and they say, it's meh. They get a new apartment and they say, it's too small. They get a new job that they're hoped for and it's just something new for them to complain about. So what's this author saying? What this author is saying is this. This author is, is hating, I believe, what God hates. Meaning he's hating the fact that fools win. He's hating the fact that injustice prevails. He's hating the fact that the looming agony of death is over all of us. And he's hating, I believe, what we've seen him develop in, e- in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2. And that is this view of life without God. I've tried to find my fulfillment in success and it's, it failed me. I hate it. I tried to find my fulfillment in knowledge and it did not succeed. I hate it. I tried to find my fulfillment in pleasure and pleasure just went through my fingers like sand and I've got nothing left. I hate it. Zach Eswine uses this illustration to explain the proper hatred of life. He says, imagine you're in a basketball game and the whole first half, the other team has been cheating, breaking every rule to win, and they've paid off the refs, and the refs are letting it happen. You're sitting in the locker room now at halftime, and your coach says, I hate this game, I hate this game. Now he's got a couple different responses. He could say this, hey team, I hate this game. This is what we're going to do. We're going to lower our own standards and we're going to break the rules and we're going to cheat as well in order to try to win. No, that's the fool. He could say, Hey, I hate this game. Basketball is a terrible game. Let's just quit basketball altogether. That's the cynic. That's the angry person. Now, you can't quit the game. You, you love the game. I hate this game. You see? And so what he says is this. He says, I hate this game. This is what we're going to do. We're going to play the best basketball we've ever played in our life. We're going to play with wisdom. We're going to play to win. And even if we lose, we're going to lose with dignity. I hate this game. That's what he says. You see, we are to hate this perversion of what life has become in which we are on this endless rat race trying to find meaning and fulfillment in something that can never fulfill. In other wor- words, we hate how we idolize success. We hate how we idolize pleasure. We hate how we take these things and replace God for them. We hate how these things can never give us meaning. We hate how these things never give us any great gain that, would, that, that will last We hate the fact that because we are pursuing all uh, of our fulfillment in these things that are fading, that as a result, our days are filled with sorrow, and work for us has become nothing but a curse, and we have sleepless nights. You see, for some of you, your days feel like nothing but sorrow. Work feels like a curse, and you struggle to sleep at night. And what the author of Ecclesiastes, I believe, is saying is that you're pursuing some form of life, some fulfillment in life, which life can't provide. And it's not until you learn to hate that aspect of life that you can rightly see God and understand life and begin to enjoy the life that God has given you are you with me so there's irony here we're dealing with irony meaning the author doesn't hate life at all he hates the result of trying to find fulfillment in life he hates the fact that seeking a legacy keeps him up at night He hates the fact that trying to be remembered fills his days with sorrow. He hates the fact that trying to find his significance in work makes his work feel like a curse. There's irony here. You see, in the irony, there is great genius here. Meaning, it's not until I truly hate trying to find my fulfillment in this life that I can learn to truly enjoy the life that god has given me so the question i want to ask you is this what robs your life of joy think of it what are your joy robbers it's not life itself but it's turning life into something that life can't deliver on i jotted down some robbers of joy robbers of joy can be our past regrets robbers of joy can be your anger and bitterness because of past harm robbers of joy can be your frustration over change that you did not want robbers of joy can be sadness of loss that you did not anticipate robbers of joy can be your fears of the future what's going to happen how's this going to go is this going to work Robbers of joy can be seeking wholeness in your accomplishments. Whereas God, check this out, right now, God has given you food to eat. Well, maybe not literally right now, unless you're like munching on some potato chips. Praise God. God has given you food to eat. God has given you love with your spouse. God has given given you a, a, a quiet morning, uh, uh, an evening to read a book. God has given us wonderful gifts right now. The thing is, is if we begin to try to find something in these gifts that they cannot deliver, we are robbed of the gift itself. So how do I find joy? How do I enjoy the life that I hate? Let me give you two good reasons to enjoy life. We started off with two good reasons to hate life. Two good reasons. Once we properly hate life, two good reasons to enjoy life. In verse 24, we see, number one, enjoy the gifts of God which make up daily life. Enjoy the gifts of God which make up your daily life. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also I saw, he says, as from the hand of God. Don't you see how the author now is turning us to see God? He's bringing in that vertical dimension, and he's saying there's something else that God has given us from his very hand. He's given us food and drink and good, meaningful work. This I saw, he says, is from the hand of God. For apart from God, apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. What he's saying is this. Like, What what are good reasons to enjoy, enjoy life? Well, let me give you one. Food. That's a good reason to enjoy life. He's saying enjoy it. Enjoy it. There's joy in food. What's another good reason to enjoy life? Drink. Beverages. Wisdom and knowledge can lead you to finding joy in your beverage. As you sip it through a straw. Even if it's a paper straw. (laughs) What's another good reason to enjoy life? Work. You say, well, that sounds like the curse. No. Work existed before the curse. It did. They were given a job. And you know that there is joy in work. You know that you can find joy in being productive, writing a good response, submitting a project, doing a good deed. Whatever it is that you do for work, you know that there is an element of joy in it. But here's the thing. If you use food, then you'll never enjoy food. If you use pleasure to try to escape, you'll never enjoy pleasure. If you use drink to try to find some kind of fulfillment, you'll never enjoy drink. If you try to prove yourself through your work, you'll never actually enjoy your work. Meaning, if we take these good things that God's given us and we place them on a pedestal pedestal, and we say, these are my God's. These are the things where I find fulfillment. These are the things where I escape. These are the things that I need in my life. What we're doing is we're we're turning them into something that they ought not be. We're turning them into a God that cannot fulfill us. And so we not only miss the enjoyment of the gift, but rather the gift itself becomes endlessly miserable to us because it never fully satisfies. But the gospel changes things. The gospel says, no, there actually is a God that ought to reign the throne of your heart. Meaning, we cannot enjoy because we're trying to find meaning in a life that can't supply. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that there is fulfillment in Him, that there is fulfillment in Christ, and that these things that we have are gifts that he's given us as reminders that he loves us and that he is present with us. Meaning only when we trust Jesus with our significance can we actually enjoy all of life. All right, let me use myself as an example. I saw a video of myself, home video. I was about 26 years old. And we're in the, the uh, living room of this t- tiny little apartment barn that we lived in. And I'm sitting there in this video on the floor, and I've got my two-year-old, Jaden and baby Eden, in front of me. And you can see in my face frustration. You can see in my face sadness. You can see, in, I can see in my face that there is disappointment in myself, that there is regret from things that I didn't do well, that there is fear of how the future is going to go, that there is a belief that I should find some kind of meaning in my accomplishments and they're not delivering. And I'm watching this video and I can see that I am there present with my kids, but not really. I'm withdrawn. And my wife is holding the, the camcorder, and she clearly wants me to be engaged with my kids for the sake of the video. And so I'm holding back the frustration and I'm holding back the sadness because I know the camera is rolling, but I'm not there. And as I watched this video, I wanted to tell myself forget your past regrets. Forget your fear over the, how the future is going to go. Forget trying to find some kind of meaning in your accomplishments and see the face of your baby. See the face of your child. Look at your wife, the wife of your youth, and love her. Don't you see, church, that as we seek to find meaning in all of the other aspects of life, trying to find a fulfillment in what life cannot give us, trying to find our significance and have what it does is it robs us of the joy that is right in front of us. And so the author is saying, what's the counter to this? How do we battle this? What he's saying is this. He's saying, see the face of your kid and love them. Hear the voice of your loved one. Enjoy the friendship that you have with your roommate. Enjoy that sandwich that you're going to have for lunch. Like actually enjoy these things as gifts from God. Live now in this moment. Seeking meaning in life cannot supply meaning. Seeking to be great is not only, it's not only unfulfilling, but it's dishonest. Like there's a sense in which seeking to be remembered, leaving a legacy, is actually a little bit insane. Because you can just simply look at recent history and know that nobody is remembered. Even the greats are forgotten. But that's not a bad thing for us. What we recognize is that as we properly hate the limitations of life, we can now seek a joy In the life that God has given us. So the question I want to ask you is this. What are you trying to find in life right now? And how is that leading you to miss the joy of life? What are you trying to find in life right now? And how is that leading you to miss the joy in life? So two good reasons to enjoy life. Number one, enjoy the gifts of God which make up daily life. And number two, enjoy, here's my second point, enjoy the redemption of God which envisions a future life. The last line in verse 26 is interesting. There's a juxtaposition here. He's contrasting in verse 26 something that he's already stated in verse 18. So in verse 18, he says that, that one reason I hate life is because I die and everything I have is left to, for somebody else. But look at verse 26. Verse 26, he says, to the sinner, this is God's curse on the sinner, the one who rejects Jesus Christ. They don't have the joy that we have. He's saying to the sinner, God has just given them the business of gathering and collecting only to give their things to the one who pleases God. Think about this. This is a contrast here. He's saying that for those who are in Christ who please God, they are in some fashion going to receive all that the sinner leaves behind. This is interesting, isn't it? It's certainly a nod to the afterlife, isn't it? I think it's an allusion to what Jesus then later picks up on and fully explains in the Gospel and the Beatitudes. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Meaning, without Christ, there is utter loss. Without Christ, it's utter vanity. But in Christ... There's an irony here, once again. In Christ, he's saying, nothing is really vanity. We don't lose anything. As a matter of fact, those who are lovers of God inherit all things. And we see that spelled out in the Gospel as Jesus one day will come again and give to his people all of the world. And we will live together with God forever. You see, the Gospel frees us to enjoy life where you are striving to be right the gospel comes along and says first of all you're not right you're a sinner you're actually a helpless sinner in need of a savior but there's good news jesus lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died and as you look to christ as you turn from your sins and trust in jesus christ Jesus' righteousness is donated to you, and you are forgiven of all of our sins. Meaning, the rightness that we are seeking after, proving ourselves, justifying ourselves, all of that is satisfied in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel says. And not only that, but Christ is coming again. And those who have trusted Jesus will be raised from the dead and will live forever with God in a recreated world and be a recipient of all things and live even disconnected from the presence of sin. You see, the gospel says you are accepted completely. And so you don't need to try to find acceptance in these things. The gospel says you are fulfilled completely and so you don't need to try to strive for fulfillment in these things. Meaning these things of life. The things that you currently have. The opportunities and moments that are yours. These things are no longer vehicles to take you to your idealistic location but rather that location, that destination is achieved in Jesus Christ. And so these things, these opportunities and moments, are actually gifts from God for you to just simply enjoy. Enjoy it. Enjoy your life. That's the message here. So how do we enjoy life? Let me, let me give you some handlebars here to grab onto, all right? Three things as we close. Number one, how do we enjoy life? Number one, enjoy the simple goodness of life. Enjoy the simple goodness of life. Meaning eat and drink and enjoy your work. When you get up tomorrow morning, enjoy that opportunity. Enjoy all of life. Enjoy the quiet of a morning. Enjoy, enjoy the, the changing seasons. Enjoy the, the voice of your child. Number one, enjoy the simple goodness of life. Number two, enjoy the simple goodness of life, listen to this, in the moment. In the moment. Right now the moment that God has given you. And in the moment is, is the author's implied key here. Instead of this kind of broad, ethereal, trying to find some broader, bigger meaning in life, he's saying just live in the moment and enjoy the blessings and the opportunities of that moment to eat and drink, etc. Stop looking past it. Stop looking to your past hurts and your brokenness. Stop looking to your uh, future concerns and your worries or your intended goals. But just simply live and enjoy the moment that God has given you. I think he's saying stop trying to create a legacy for yourself. Stop trying to be seen as great and see the face of your child. And recognize how beautiful that face is. What a gift. Enjoy the simple goodness of life in the moment. And thirdly, and lastly, enjoy the simple goodness of life as a gift from God. He says, This too is from the hand of God. Meaning, these things are God's gifts to us. Receiving something as a gift increases the enjoyment of it, it shows us God's love. God's kindness. It's like that bar of soap that I have on my bookshelf. It's just a little bar of soap. Why, why, Joel, do you find such pleasure in a bar of soap that you put it on your bookshelf? It's because it's not just a bar of soap. It's a gift. You see, understanding something as a gift, it communicates something greater about the giver. We love that thing. We enjoy that thing, not just because of the thing itself, but because of the giver of that thing. Are you with me? the giggle of your child, the cup of coffee, the new friendship that you just made, the pizza coming out of the oven, writing a good email, submitting a project, listening to a lecture in school, all of these moments are gifts from God given to you to enjoy. Even in this very moment, it's a little warm in here right now, at least it is for me up here, but heat on a brisk fall day its a gift from God. The leaves changing, beauty, In creation, it's a gift from God. Surrounded, you are surrounded by people right now. Real lives, real people with real stories and real faces. And they actually want to know you and imperfectly they want to love you. What a gift of God that is. And we're gonna miss it. We're gonna completely miss it because we're focusing on everything else and missing the joy of this moment. How do we receive it? We receive it as a gift from God. And see, here's the thing. Even if you struggle to enjoy it, and there are are times and seasons that people might go through to where they know that this is a gift. They know this should be enjoyed, and that's part of the problem. It's that I can't enjoy it. I don't have any feelings of happiness right now. even if that's you, receive it as a gift from God nonetheless, meaning be reminded that God is with you. God is present. God loves you, and the more you see God, the more you'll begin to understand the joy of his gifts. The value of of the gift is in the giver, what it means, what it says to us about the giver. Let me close with this analogy from the Bible. You guys know uh, that, that story about Jesus and Peter getting reconciled? You know what happened just before, or as they were being reconciled? Let me back up a little bit. Jesus was going to the cross, and, and Peter is uh, asked, hey, don't you know this guy? What does Peter do? He denies him three times. In Jesus' most crucial moment, denied by Peter. Peter then watches Jesus go on the cross. Three days later, Jesus gets up from the dead. And now it's time for reconciliation. What happens in that moment? Peter is out with his disciples fishing. Without, uh, w- out with the disciples fishing. They're, they're coming back to the shore. And what do they see, see Jesus doing on the land? He's grilling He's making some breakfast. And they get to to the shore. This is what reconciliation looks like. In John chapter 21, Jesus takes the food and he says, Hey, have some breakfast. He goes on to say that he took the bread and he gave him, uh, he broke it and gave it to them to eat. And then he did the same with the fish. A good gift. Jesus gives a gift, and that gift signifies something so much more than the breakfast itself. Oh, how about when Jesus ate his last meal with his disciples? They sat around the table, and Jesus broke the bread, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, and he passed it to them, and he said, Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me oh the bread and the cup it's a mere symbol it's a sign it's a gift of something that is so much greater we don't eat the bread and and drink the cup and find enjoyment in the thing itself but rather it's what that thing points us to are you with me and this is all of life this is how we enjoy life knowing that it's God saying, I'm with you, I love you. We say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. And your non-Christian friend comes along and they say, I don't understand how you can have so much joy in life Tell me about it. And you say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so church, may we be able to say as that chorus sings, may your struggles keep you near the cross. May Your troubles show that you need God. May your battles end the way they should. And may your bad days prove that God is good. May your whole life prove that God is good. He's with you. God is present, God is near, God is here. God loves you. God is for you. God will never leave you. God will never forget you. God is coming for you. God knows you. God loves you, church. God loves you. See his gifts and enjoy them. And as a result, enjoy God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God who has given us good gifts. Lord, let us Enjoy the life that you've given us, every moment and every opportunity. May we not turn life into something more than life ought to be, but may we be able to enjoy it because we enjoy you. And God, even if we struggle to have pleasure, if we struggle to have happiness in this world, may we still know by these gifts that you are with us, that you love us, that you are present. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.